You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. George Werthner is a professional photographer, writer, and ecologist. He has written more than two dozen books on natural history and other environmental topics. He is currently the Ecological Projects Director for the Foundation for Deep Ecology. George has visited hundreds of mountain ranges around the West, including more than 380 wilderness areas, more than 180 national park units, and every national forest west of the Mississippi. Consequently, there are very few people as qualified to talk about the effect public lands grazing has on western lands and wildlife as George. Which is why I wanted to interview him today, starting off with his 3,000-foot view on public lands grazing. Grazing on public lands is a privilege. It is not a right, even though the livestock industry talks about grazing rights. The way it works is uh, typically is you have to have a base property, uh, in other words, a ranch somewhere close to the public lands uh, you're grazing, and then you pay so much a year in lease fees uh, to uh, you know take the forage off. And that's what the grazing fee is about. And that grazing fee, um, which right now is a dollar twenty-six, I believe, is the latest uh, thing, the lowest it's ever been since the 1950s, I think. Um, in any event, it's it's supposed to cover the administration of the grazing uh, allotment management, and also a certain percentage of that, depending if it's BLM or, or Forest Service. Uh, it gets split different ways, but some of that money goes back for what's called range improvements. In other words, the, the, the total amount of money that goes into the federal coffers actually goes back to enhance the private use of these lands by the livestock industry by putting in infrastructure like uh, spring developments or watering troughs, uh, maybe fencing, etc. And the problem with the fees, and there's a number of them, one is it's considerably lower than what uh, a rancher would have to pay on similar uh, private lands, adjacent private lands, and sometimes even uh, some other public lands. For example, wildlife refuges are not under that program, and many wildlife refuges charge prices that are similar to private lands. So that's why the average price for grazing on private land is about $22 an AUM. An AUM means animal unit month, or what is thought to be the amount of forage consumed by a cow and calf in a typical month. Now, mind you, $1.26 to feed on public lands for a whole month, you could not even feed a hamster for that amount of money for a month. So it's a ridiculously low price. And it does not incorporate anywhere near the ecological damage that's done by that livestock grazing, much less cover even the administrative fees and and, and management costs that the public uh, spends to manage these private businesses on our public land. Describe some of those more egregious management fees. What do some of those things go for? Talk about wildlife services and other things that... Um, 
those fees go toward and create further damage on public lands? Well, uh, as far as I know, wildlife, the, the, the grazing fees don't pay directly for wildlife services, but that comes out of other federal funds. And wildlife services is a, a euphemism for killing wildlife. Uh, that's how they service the wildlife. It, um, uh, it's, a, it's a public agency that's very, very uh, closed-mouthed about what it does. Uh, it goes out and shoots uh, or poisons or traps uh, public wildlife on public land, like particularly predators, like uh, wolves, coyotes, uh, uh, cougars, etc., but also sometimes uh, killing smaller things like uh, prairie dogs and ground squirrels and that sort of thing. They uh, do this throughout the West, and it's uh, a, a huge impact on some uh, wildlife species in terms of uh, the number of animals that are killed. But even where it doesn't, you know, like coyotes, there's lots of coyotes, but it's, it's just done as a preventative thing. It, it often isn't killing an individual surgical removal of an animal that might be uh, causing a problem. And I want to get back to that whole idea about what's causing a problem. But um, they, uh, they just go out and randomly shoot coyotes, for example, and, uh, and other wildlife on the public land. Uh, these ranchers are grazing on public lands, uh, and as we've mentioned already, not paying anywhere near the real economic costs in terms of what it costs to manage it, much less the ecological costs. And yet, when it comes to push comes to shove and there's any kind of conflict, for example, uh, grizzly bears, uh, you know, attacking cattle, it's the grizzly bears that get removed, not the cattle. And uh, the same for, you know, wolves and coyotes, etc. And at the very least, in my view, this is public wildlife, it is public lands and grazing is a privilege. A cost of doing business should be, uh, at a minimum, the acceptance that if you have any losses, that's your problem. Uh, you don't kill the wildlife. We remove the problem, which is the livestock being there, not the grizzly bear or the wolves. I think that comes with the feeling as though it's a right uh, and not a privilege situation. The demand to make this land what I need it to be so I can graze my sheep and cattle without having to worry about them uh, ever being taken by anything, you know, ever. Not one wolf kill, not ever. Um, I, I thought that the Defenders of Wildlife back in the 90s, I think it was in the 90s when they started that program of reimbursing ranchers uh, for mm-hmm. wolf predation. Um, proven wolf predation. I thought that was just going to end that whole uh, argument. I really, you know, at the time I was very excited about it. I was worried about how they were going to maybe pay for it or how the program was going to be run or, or how, you know, if it was sustainable. But I thought it was a really great idea, but that just isn't something that's even talked about anymore. I think that program is still out there somewhere, or maybe it's not, you can clarify, but it just doesn't seem to matter to ranchers. No, it doesn't. And and what ranchers will, what I hear from them a lot is I'm not right. You know, it's actually gets down to a philosophical thing because for example, losses to wolves is a very minor part of any livestock operation or grizzly bears or any of those predators. But it's, um, they say, I'm not raising my livestock to feed predators. I'm raising my livestock for food and fiber for the nation. You know, it's very patriotic. And so uh, it really comes down to uh, a philosophical uh, hatred of anything that is uncontrollable, really, is what it gets down to, I think, at the deepest levels. 
and um, you know predators and and things like that are are things that ranchers don't have a lot of control over, and they're used to controlling things and they want to control things and and so that's why even if you pay for the loss of of an animal, it often doesn't really satisfy them. And and there's another part of it to uh, to the issue too that they would argue, and and this would get back to my argument about who's you know grazing on public lands is a privilege. But they would say that uh, even if their animal isn't lost to a predator, oftentimes they're agitated and anxious because of the uh, presence of predators, and then they don't put on as much weight. But again, I would say if you're using my public lands to feed your cattle for almost nothing. Uh, then that's your problem. Uh, you don't like it, go to private lands and, and leave my public lands alone. But that's one of the arguments they'll give you is that they, uh, their cattle are losing weight sometimes, even if they're not getting killed directly by the presence of wolves or grizzlies or whatever. I'm a business owner as well as a conservationist, and I would love to have some of the perks that ranchers get from the government. I try not to be jealous. You know, it's like, (laughs) why do these guys have so much access? You had a wonderful, wonderful article in the wildlife news, uh, many wonderful articles, but this one in particular on December 21st, 2018, killing public wildlife for private profit. And you really get into the the whole, the absurdity, really. Um, When people look at this issue, they, they tend to go, well, the ranchers are part of our history and, they, and they've been doing this for a long time. I'm sure that they care about the land and I'm sure that, you know, how could they last this long? And, and um, you really just take the whole issue apart in this article and show the absurdity of this whole, uh, just how much they've got the government, um, local, state, and, and federal wrapped around their little finger. Well, um, there, there are the two aspects to this that I would hit on. One is the economic uh, perks and subsidies, and they include not just the low grazing fees. There's all sorts of programs to help ranchers, not just on public lands, but ranchers in general, emergency livestock feed, uh, you know, um, uh, predator, we, the previous talked about predator control from wildlife services. Um, many government programs that are funded by all taxpayers to, uh, that facilitates the use of these lands by livestock. Uh, a, a one that's a minor one that most people don't know about in many counties, uh, the um, uh, the cattle guards that you see those uh, mm. uh, where the where there's slots across the road, uh, they cost uh, quite a bit of money to put in, and usually that's paid by taxpayers. Um, so there's lots of little things like that. The fencing of highways, um, we have to fence out livestock uh, from places and that cost is transferred to the public. Uh, and, and that includes things on public lands. Like if you look closely at uh, how the money is spent in the Forest Service or the BLM or other public agencies, for example, uh, if, if there's a campground someplace and the Forest Service fences it to keep out somebody's private livestock, we, that comes out of the recreation budget, not from the livestock range budget. If you're fencing... Uh, uh, an area to keep cattle out of a, a riparian area so they don't damage the wildlife habitat. That'll typically come out of the wildlife fund budget, not the range budget, and things like that. So there's a lot of um, accounting that hides the real cost, and that's the economic subsidies. And then we have the ecological subsidies. 
so, for example, many of the endangered species around the West are endangered directly because of livestock production, whether that's uh, things like uh, prairie dogs, uh, certain subspecies of prairie dogs are endangered, to um, things like many fish around the West are endangered. And a lot of that has to do with the presence of livestock production, you know, destruction of habitat or the fact that, like in prairie dogs, uh, we actually go out and try to kill them all the time. Uh, in any event, the taxpayers pay for the recovery of these species when the source of the decline is often directly attributed to the livestock production. And then you have things that are not necessarily on public lands per se, although there are public lands that are irrigated pastures. For example, in Grand Teton National Park, there's actually a part of the park that's irrigated for livestock feed for cattle in the park. Um, but the point I want to get to is that water is taken out of streams and rivers around the West. Uh, and in every Western state, water is owned by the public. It is, it is not a, a water right, as the ranchers say. It's a water privilege. And so many of our rivers are dewatered uh, to produce hay and other forage for livestock. And, uh, and the rivers suffer and the fish and other wildlife associated with it. So uh, just to give you a couple of other ecological costs, for example, uh, fences. Why do we have fences all over the public land? Well, that's to manage the livestock. But those fences block migration for some animals. Uh, the fences out in the sagebrush country become uh, posts for avian predators that prey on endangered uh, species or species that could be endangered soon, like sagebrush. Uh, they... Uh, so the presence of fences are not to mention just a pain in the butt if you're ever out on your own public lands trying to move around. So uh, that's that's a cost uh, that the ranchers don't pay, and uh, and it's just internalized uh, into our costs rather than having it be part of their cost of operation. Have you or uh, anyone you know done a? back of the napkin calculation or something more extensive as a study ever been done, that if we took away all of these subsidies, would the ranching industry in the West, it especially, would it even be feasible? Would it, would, could they still make whatever they consider a living on ranching if they weren't subsidized to the hilt, ecologically, economically, and every, everywhere else? In my view, no, uh, because what you're up against is aridity. And aridity is, you know, for the most part, is a common factor of a lot of the West. And that aridity limits productivity. So, for example, just to give you one thing that I just mentioned, irrigation. You don't have to irrigate to grow cows in Georgia or Missouri. But that's a cost that Westerners, uh, Western ranchers have. The only reason they can compete with a, a, a cattle operation in some place like Missouri is that they don't pay anything for the water. They take it out of our rivers and they use it to produce their forage. So in a sense, they're getting the water for free uh, to grow that forage. If we charge for that water in, in a very minimum, a lot of these ranchers wouldn't be able to afford to grow hay and they would have a hard time competing with a, 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 a livestock producer in some place like Missouri or Georgia. Another impact imposed by aridity is that the land is not nearly as productive. In Nevada, for example, in the Great Basin, it takes up to 250 acres to support a cow. 
uh, you can support a cow on a couple of one to two acres in Georgia or Vermont or Missouri or any of those eastern states. And so, well, what happens when you need 250 acres to support a cow? Well, one, uh, the livestock is going to be much more vulnerable to any predator. Uh, in some place like Georgia, you, you can put the cows on the back 40 and put them in a barn every night if you wanted to and, or corral and keep them protected. But, uh, you know, on the public rangelands and the dry area parts of the West, the cows are out there for months at a time with virtually no supervision. And um, aridity means that the cattle have to uh, spend a lot of time on the riparian areas, which is the little lines of green vegetation along streams and other waterways, springs, etc., that are also critical to 70 to 80 percent of the wildlife in the West. Well, in Georgia and Missouri, the cattle, not that they can't do damage to rivers, but they don't spend nearly as much time there because it's just as lush 100 yards, 200 yards from a river as it is right next to the river in terms of forage. So there's not that concentration like you see in the West. So, uh, and those are just a few examples. The, um, the productivity puts limits on your economic viability. But because ranchers get all kinds of subsidies, both uh, documented as well as undocumented, uh, they, can, they can compete somewhat with Easterners. And another way, by the way, the public lands helps out the Western ranchers. They don't pay any taxes on that land. So uh, a producer in some place like Georgia or Missouri is having to pay taxes on his property as well. So uh, the, the Western rancher grazing on public lands uh, gets another subsidy that gives them a, a, a way to compete with these producers in the Midwest and the eastern part of the United States. I wish I had your life list of places that you've been and hiked the wilderness areas and everything, and I'm working on it. But I've, I've hiked a lot of places and I've run into a lot of cows and a lot of weird situations um, but what strikes me the most is some of the places that I've, or most of the places in the West that I've hiked, I look around and I see no grass and I wonder, and I see these cows and I'm like, how do they even pull nutrition out? Do they do it out of the air? Because every place that I go is got this moonscape of just rocks and dirt, um, riparian areas that have got cow crap all over the place and, and they're just utterly destroyed. And, and I just think this is sanctioned one. And uh, they're probably not breaking any rules because the rules suck. Uh, they should be much stronger. Uh, and I can't figure out how cows even make a living out there, how the cows themselves do it. I found them with uh, choya uh, spines in their lips. I wonder how they can even eat or get those things out to eat again. Um, I saw a calf one time that I even felt sorry for and tried to help out a little bit with some a whole bunch of choya in his mouth and I'm like, this thing's going to die or something. Or the, who knows where the rancher is? They're never around um, doing anything proactively with their herd. And after hiking a long time, I never did run into a rancher himself. And these cows are just running all over uh, the place. I've seen broken down fences that were supposed to do what you mentioned before, protect riparian areas or research areas or, or uh, parts of the wilderness that they were not supposed to be. That went unrepaired. I'd go back a year later, still unrepaired. I really wonder about what would happen to the beef industry if the artificial propping up of the Western beef industry was just eliminated and they had to stop. Would that even have a meaningful impact on the, the economy of beef production in this well, country? Uh, a lot of that uh, grazing on very arid public lands 
is not really aimed at the cattle putting on that much weight there. The idea behind it is getting the cattle off of their property so they can grow hay, which they then feed them to fatten them up before they send them to a feedlot where they get fattened up even more. Uh, so it's a displacement uh, opportunity that gives the rancher to a chance to grow on the, um, the productive hay fields uh, using our public water in most cases um, to uh, grow the forage that will eventually bring those animals up. But since they don't have to pay much to keep them out there, it's, uh, uh, it works out pretty well in the end, even though uh, they may uh, actually gain much more weight if they were you know, grazing on better, better lands in the end. The other part of your question about the use of those lands and how it would affect producers in other parts of the country, well, the one statistic that's pretty interesting is about 3% of all the forage consumed by domestic livestock in this country comes off of public lands. And the reason you have to say forage is because you can't say how long they're on. Some places like Arizona, New Mexico, uh, livestock are on public lands year-round. In places like Montana, where you've got deep snow and so forth, they may only be out on the public lands a couple of months of the of the year. But uh, it's the amount of forage that's used uh, that's the important factor. So if you were to eliminate all livestock grazing on public lands, two things would happen. One, some, some ranchers would actually go out of business, and that would reduce competition for the private uh, landowners both in the West and other places in the East that are beef producers and, and land producers. And the other thing that would happen is um, those that wanted to stay in business would have to uh, lease or buy private land as they should and then operate entirely on private land. And, um, but even on private land, again, because of the productivity factor, most Western ranch operations are not nearly as uh, productive as, say, a farmer in Minnesota or Missouri growing uh, livestock. So, um, and, and, and since that 3% that comes off of public lands, that forage, is such a small amount, um, it really probably wouldn't make that much difference in the supply of beef, and it might actually enhance the survivability of farmers in places like Missouri or Georgia. Not to suggest that livestock production there is benign either, but the the lack of, the aridity of the West imposes all sorts of costs that don't exist in the more humid parts of the country. You know, the fact that you can grow uh, 100 cows on a much smaller acreage in some place like Georgia compared to 100 cows in Nevada uh, means just the overall impact is not going to be affecting as much of the landscape. Well, you can repair certain amount, certain kinds of damage in the East in one season, and that same damage can last for decades in places in the arid West. It, it, it's, exactly. it, they may not be a, a, a significant, a terribly significant part of the beef supply in, in the country, but they are an outsized, I, I bet I could go back to some places that I really loved when I was hiking in the 90s and early 2000s. And, and see signs of things that were done back then that are still there because of what you're describing. What do you see as the, the ultimate goal here that people can get behind who are listening to this? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, as I suggested, if you really did a, a real cost accounting uh, of the impacts, 
uh, to the landscape and to the public, um, there is no way you could rationalize or justify grazing and livestock production on our public lands. Uh, the costs are just really excessively high. Uh, another thing I didn't mention earlier is a simple example is the trampling of biological crust that grow in arid landscapes between grasses. There's no way you can have cattle out there in concentrated form and not be impacting the bio crust. And in a lot of parts of the West, large mammals were never that common, like the Great Basin, the Sonoran Desert, etc. Large, heavy animals like cattle uh, haven't been there for tens of thousands of years. And so um, that kind of damage is, is difficult to put an, uh, an economic cost on. But if those costs were accounted, um, it, it just wouldn't make any sense. And so one way to deal with this that has been out there for a while is to try to do uh, what's called a permit, uh, allotment permit buyout. Now, mind you, grazing on public lands is a privilege. It's not a right. Uh, but due to the political power of the livestock industry, to just eliminate livestock is very difficult. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is the uh, many parts of the West, the politicians are ranchers. Uh, so that makes it hard. For example, I did a study, and this was a number of years ago, but in Montana, where I lived, at that time, over 50% of the state legislature listed their occupation as a uh, farmer rancher. Hmm. Uh, at that time, the, the governor and lieutenant governor were both from ranching. The One of the senators was a rancher uh, and so forth. So uh, they dominated the politics in Montana. Uh, uh, landscape and uh, political landscape. And so getting uh, rid of livestock grazing just by simply eliminating it, if there's damage, is really hard. The other factor is uh, decisions about livestock grazing on public lands are made by what's called range conservationists. And uh, if you're a range conservationist, your job depends on keeping cattle there. If there's no cattle, there's no job for you. So what you find is that the range guys go through incredible gyrations, often using public money, to uh, reduce the impact of livestock in any particular area. So to give you an example, if you could get a range conservationist to even admit that livestock were damaging a repairing area, rather than eliminating the livestock, uh, their solution would be, let's spend a million dollars and build a big long water pipeline and move the water from the creek to some uplands where uh, we can put water troughs for the cattle and try to keep them from going to the repairing area. In other words, they look for any kind of solution other than removing the cattle. And this is where the permit buyout comes in handy. Uh, there are ranchers who, for any number of reasons, are looking to get out of the livestock industry. Um, many uh, older ranchers find that their children are not interested in being ranchers, and uh, they want to uh, retire, so to speak, and get out of the business. And the way the permit livestock uh, buyout would work is uh, there would be a, an agreed-upon price uh, between the rancher and whoever is providing the money. And in most buyouts, it usually comes from private parties, uh, foundations and individuals who donate the money to uh, to the buyout. And once that agreement is reached, then you go to the managing agency like the Forest Service or the BLM, and you get them to agree 
to close that allotment to livestock grazing into the future. Uh, the best way to do that is legislatively. For example, uh, in the Boulder White Cloud Wilderness Legislation for Idaho, part of that legislation had a buyout provision that said if there were willing ranchers, and it's all voluntary, if the ranchers are volunteer to give up their grazing privileges for a certain amount of money, then the Forest Service and the BLM in that area are directed to permanently close those allotments to future livestock production. And right now, um, most of that buyout uh, provisions are being uh, incorporated into some other uh, legislation like the Boulder White Cloud Wilderness, uh, the Cascade Siskiyou National Monument that was established in Oregon had similar language, etc. So um, we don't have to pay for them, but in many cases, that's the easiest way to remove livestock from some land. The problem is, is for every allotment that gets closed that way, there are, you know, a thousand others that aren't getting closed. So uh, we we really need to have this ramped up to be a westwide opportunity on all public lands and funded to pay for that. And in many cases, it would be far cheaper for the public to buy out these allotments than to continue subsidizing them in all the ways I've mentioned before, both the direct economic subsidies as well as the ecological subsidies. Though we would have to buy them out, we would not be spending as much as all of the different services discussed earlier if it was kept open. So it would still... Exactly. The bitterness of having to buy them out, I mean, it's our land, <laughs> but exactly. it would save us money. I thought that this already was a program. I had heard us talking about this in the 90s um, in, in the Southwest. I thought at the time that that, was, that already was sort of a federal program. The way you talk about it, it sounds like it's a spotty local state sort of thing, and it could be here but not there. Is that the case, that we need more that, robust legislation? Yes. Uh, what, you're, what you probably thought was there was a big effort back in the 90s to try to get national legislation, and it never succeeded because the Stock Growers Association and other uh, lobby groups for the livestock industry didn't want to see it succeed. And the reason for that, and they, they of course never said the real reason, but the, the reason they say that is because if you were to reduce, say, you know, the number of ranchers on public lands by a third or some significant amount, you lose a lot of your political power. And uh, so there was a fear that if this were actually implemented, that uh, there would be a significant number of ranchers who would take advantage of it. So it never got passed as national legislation, but it gets introduced every year. It's still being introduced. Uh, and maybe one of these years, national legislation would be passed. But in the meantime, what has happened is it has been used uh, with other legislation, like I said, in the creation of uh, wilderness areas, uh, national monuments, and other uh, public land designations. There have been uh, opportunities to uh, have those allotments closed. You know how the conservation movement works. It's panda bears and wolves and, and uh, charismatic megafauna. And this isn't that sexy of an issue. But I think that what we probably could do is get people to realize that if you want a good chance, the best chance ever of seeing a wolf when you're out on your big hike, one of your bucket list hikes and your uh, <laughs> highlight of your life, if, you're, if you want to see 
uh, abundant prairie dogs and maybe even a black-footed ferret or something like that. This issue here, though not as sexy as others, has everything to do, almost everything to do with that. Uh, exactly. that ability. So I think that we probably need to make sure that people understand that, make that connection, because these ranchers are out, outspoken in the West, especially in the Washington lately, <laughs> uh, about uh, killing wolves at all costs, going into the dens and ripping puppies out of them. Every single thing that they can possibly do um, it's a real war out there, and ranchers lead that charge. These people we're talking about about grazing on public lands um, are also extremely big political figures, big people who are, who are mixed up in really big controversies over what constitutes public land um, and for whom it should be protected. Um, but I think the direct connection between whether or not you want to see wolves on public lands or any other species if it's not a cow, ranchers are at war with it. Well, that's certainly true. And, 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 and I can even go beyond that and make the case for somebody who maybe doesn't even go out on public lands. For example, as mentioned, um, the, the mountain ranges and public lands of the West are often the fountainheads for water around the arid West. And uh, especially with climate heating and change that's coming about, um, having uh, those mountain reservoirs being attacked is important. And uh, as I mentioned, riparian areas, they're very, those wetlands along streams, they soak up water if they're intact and functional and slowly release that water during the summertime when there's usually a lot less moisture available from natural sources like rain. And, um, and, and so removal of livestock from a lot of those lands would have several factors. One, it would reduce the amount of flooding that may occur because when livestock strip off the vegetation and compact the soil with their hooves, uh, it speeds this runoff, but it also reduces the ability of that land to soak up moisture as well. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, if you're somebody living in Phoenix or Tucson, uh, having uh, those uh, natural sponges intact and functional uh, helps you to still have some water to, you know, just drink out of a faucet. Um, and that's certainly much more valuable than growing alfalfa uh, or hay with that water, much less, of course, the loss of that habitat in the um, public lands for all the wildlife that may depend on those water-soaked areas. George, I think we have a lot to talk about in the future. I hope you had a great time today because I intend to invite you back to talk about this and many, many other issues that you are so well qualified to talk about. Um, this has been extraordinarily informative. Uh, I hope people uh, will come and read George's articles on rewilding.org, and you can also catch a huge amount of his writing at thewildlifenews.com. Just type George in the search and you'll find trillions of articles there. And they're all wonderful and very well uh, researched. Um, George, thank you so much for being with us on Rewilding Earth today. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. And please do invite me back. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.